Oh man, it's good to be here. If you would, uh, open your Bibles. We're going to get right into it and get to work. To the Gospel of Mark. Gospel of Mark, chapter 1, verse 32. We're going to read verses 32 through 39 this morning. Mark 1, 32 through 39. Uh, a couple years ago, I took a picture um, of this list of goals that was uh, up on a bulletin board at the school where Katie works. Because I knew one day it would come in handy. And lo, that day is today. It's a, a child's list of goals that are really priorities. And I'm just going to read them off for you, for those of you who uh, can't see, or if you're vulnerable enough to admit it, can't read. Uh, number one says, uh, beating Kevin at arm wrestling. Number two, beat the impossible game. Number three, going to college. Number four, finishing college. Number five, graduating high school. Number six, getting married. Number seven, having kids. Number eight, (laughs) get a fat cat and make it mine. (laughs) Yeah, no explanation needed. Anyone can make a list of goals, as shown here by this child. But we show our priorities by what we do. All this, I don't know, second, maybe third grader uh, has goals. You can tell what he's going to work on next, what he's going to work toward next. Sure, he puts down college and finishing high school, having kids, getting married, those sorts of things. Because he knows probably he's supposed to. What he's going to do next are his priorities. It's pretty clear reading that list what is going to happen in this child's life next. He's going to be working on beating his brother in arm wrestling, beating the impossible game, and of course, finding a way to get a fat cat and make it his. And this morning, we're going to look not really so much at goals, but Jesus' priority. His priority number one and two today. And consider how to respond and possibly reorder our own along the way. Let's do that together. Mark Chapter 1, starting in verse 32, we'll read through verse 39. God's Word. That evening at sundown, they brought to Jesus all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door, and he healed many who were sick with various diseases. He cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed. And he went out to a desolate place, and there Jesus prayed. And Simon Peter and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray simply this morning by the power and the leading of the Holy Spirit, Jesus, please help me preach 
what matters most to you and help us hear what matters most to you. Amen. You begrudgingly make your way to a company office party only to find your boss doesn't show up. That kind-hearted saint who sent the email to organize and bought the paint for the service project says they won't actually be there to help. One parent pushes a sport or activity and signs the kid up. But the more reluctant parent finds themselves driving to the practices, watching all the games, maybe even getting roped in to assistant coaching. Your pastor and his wife don't show up to an official church event or your special shindig. Your flatmate ditches out on game night. Hosted at y'all's place. Right? Presumably because he or she has found something more important to do. Either because of what they've done in the past or because of who they are. We expect certain people to show up at certain times and are often somewhere between mildly frustrated to deeply disappointed when they don't. When they don't show up. Such is the scenario here stirring around Jesus in Capernaum, the city called Capernaum. He spent the entire Sabbath day teaching people. And they kind of get warmed up to him. And as they warm up to him, they go to him for for healing and change in their life. And they expected him to show up the next day also. But Jesus had a singular priority and then a very clear secondary priority, both of which were crystal clear. And while Simon Peter doesn't stick around long enough to witness its effect or at least tell us about it. You can imagine the disappointment many felt toward Jesus when they woke up and they went out and they didn't find him the next morning. Friends, if you expect to pursue Jesus as truly, truly your highest priority, you will disappoint others. Many will misunderstand, misinterpret, and so act misanthropic toward you. But some, it'll be the minority, but some will see and will follow you as you follow Jesus. They'll see the pursuit of your heart, the closeness you experience with Jesus, and some will follow as you follow the example of Christ. My prayer for us today is that we will first learn about Jesus from his putting first things first and respond to his person and then learn from Jesus's putting the first things first and respond with our priorities. That's what we'll do this morning. First, learn about Jesus from his putting first things first. Jesus's first thing was life-giving, one-on-one time relating with His Father, His Heavenly Father. There was no substitute for it from Jesus. 
he departed and he went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Jesus calls himself the life-giving vine. John 15.5, it's right behind us in this banner. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a person abides in me and I in him, he's going to bear much fruit. But apart from me, you can't do anything. Nothing of real lasting significance. But Jesus had his own life-giving vine, and it was his Father. John 6.57, Jesus puts it this way. The living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father. So, the one who feeds on me will live because of me. One who is completely dependent on me will live because of me. And people didn't like this teaching. People thought it was too radical to depend, to get life from one person. And so this is the the time in Jesus' ministry where it actually says at the end of John 6 that many disciples left him. Jesus is very clear. His reason for being is the Father. His reason for existence is the Father. It's the beginning of an order pattern that we're going to revisit later. Because he follows through with his number one priority, every other priority for Jesus falls rightly into place. Appropriately ordered. He can state without batting an eye to Simon, who clearly expects something different from Jesus, doesn't he? can clearly state his second thing, the reason he came to this world. We get his reason for being, for existing, the reason he came into this world. The second thing is to spread the kingdom of God by preaching the good news about his rescue plan. Spreading the kingdom of God by preaching the good news about his rescue plan. Let us go to the next towns, Jesus says to Simon when he gives him, here's my expectations of you, Jesus. Here's what I think should have happened, Jesus. Okay, Simon, we are going to do something different. We're going to go to the next towns, which is the practical outworking of the kingdom. How does the kingdom practically spread? By going to the next place and speaking the word of God. That I may preach there also, he says. Hearing the word of God creates faith. As many miracles as Jesus does, and we saw a few last week, they never create faith. It's important. Because we often say to ourselves, God, show me a sign, give me a miracle. If I just saw God do this, it would create faith. Now, miracles often confirm and adorn and make attractive the Word of God. And indeed, the potential for for healing, the the potential to be released from demonic oppression act as opportunities for people to step out in faith, to express faith in the Word that Jesus has spoken. Plus, miracles, they give us this visual, physically, of what the Word does spiritually. It's through, through miracles, Jesus heals. He restores. right? He releases. And that's what the Word of God does in our life. When truth comes into our life, it sets us free. Releases us. It begins to heal us. 
to restore us and make us whole. The miracles have an profoundly important role in the kingdom of God, but as the word of God, whose central message woven from Genesis 3 onwards, the good news about a rescuer, a rescuer who would come and rescue people from sin, death, and eternal separation from God in a real hell. That word, that message creates faith. So Paul says in Romans 10, 17, faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the word of Christ. And so Jesus preaches as his second thing. He gets the second thing second. Notice, though, only after Jesus is determined that before his teeth brushing, coffee making, and the cock crowing, he gets the first thing first. And the Father enlivens and empowers them to do the second thing second, which we see in verse 39. Verse 39 is so important for that reason. He does go throughout all Galilee preaching in their synagogues. He does the second thing. And yes, casting out demons. This, Jesus prioritizing his life in the midst of all this busyness and kingdom advancement was not without significant pressures upon his priority. Two pressures specifically we can easily see and even infer here. The first one is disappointing people. Mentioned it earlier. You felt that in your life, right? I want you to feel it again. Try to put yourself as best you can in the place of one of the disciples. Specifically, let's try Simon Peter, from whose point of view this entire gospel is told. It was the Sabbath at sundown, about 6 p.m., when people were allowed to finally move freely because it was the Sabbath. People weren't supposed to work, and that often meant in their minds, and in the teaching they'd always heard, they weren't supposed to do anything. They just sat at home, kind of were nice to each other, did some sleeping, prayed a couple prayers. But now it's sundown. We can finally move about. We heard Jesus earlier. Let's go to him. We've been waiting all day. Let's go to him. So they come to Jesus with particular needs, infirmities, so it's already relatively late in the day when the whole city gathered at the door. It would have been interesting for Simon Peter, especially because this is probably his house. And yet, Jesus healed many. Not all, but many. The image is one of work between Jesus and a small band of followers who are likely doing the admin of ushering people in and organizing people into some semblance of a line, which is pretty hard to do when everybody is coming out healed, right? You can imagine the excitement, how hard it is to get people from a mob, but everyone they see come out of the door is like, I'm healed, I'm healed, hallelujah. I don't know if they spoke like that, right? It was probably in more Palestinian dialect, but pretty hard Keep a line in order. It's exhausting. They're beat. They're tired. Parched mouths. Right? A dry throat. Legs are aching from standing. A brave disciple calls, hey man, sleep tomorrow. Tonight we have this need. Right? He's trying to impress Jesus maybe. At some point they call it a night with the likely tacit understanding that 
between the disciples and the people that tomorrow they'll finish with the whole city. One can imagine person after person coming up to Simon, to James, to Andrew, saying, but hey, my daughter, you haven't got to my daughter and she's sick. Or my mind is still foggy. My stomach experiences pains, these sharp pains still. My, my mother still has these spasms. that We don't know where they're coming from, what's causing them. And the disciples respond, hey, look, it's late. Come tomorrow morning and see Jesus. Do you promise? Do you promise? Sure. Hey, we're not going anywhere. We're sleeping here tonight. Can you imagine this happening? I can't. So the band Simon leads to find Jesus the next morning, does find him. He gives him that look like, where were you? Everyone is looking for you. They're looking to seek you, Jesus. It's likely not everyone, but when someone's disappointed in you, they often use the exaggerated everyone, right? Everyone to exert more pressure on you, make them feel how deeply disappointed you really feel. Pressure on the disciples to produce on a promise that wasn't theirs to give. The weight of expectation of needy people, legitimate needs. In the face of sure disappointment, Jesus says no. He says no. Can you imagine the pressure? The temptation for Jesus. Which leads us to the second pressure, really. That's overpopulating priorities. There's always more good things, more good people. More good causes. Jesus had already won a hearing in, in the synagogue here in Capernaum. He was on his way to healing the entire town. This place could have used Jesus, and Jesus could have set up shop here as his home base, his home base of ministry. Especially since Simon and Andrew made their homes in Capernaum. In fact, it's pretty cool. I think it's like 1966, an excavation revealed that Simon Peter's home was, in fact, in Capernaum. He was a real person. This is where he lived. So he could have set up shop there. It was a good place. Good people, good opportunities. And he says no. As Jim Collins famously has said, good is the enemy of great. Good opportunities, good people, good causes. More appropriately here, appropriately here, good priority five, six, seven can be the enemy of priority one and priority two. But Jesus says no to overpopulating priorities and other good causes, as hard as it may have been. What do we learn then about Jesus here? King Jesus, first of all, he understands our same pressures and responded with the same divine dependence. The same dependence on someone other than himself. The idea of Jesus needing to spend time alone with the Father, to depend on the Father, confuses some people. If Jesus is really God, why does He need anything at all? You might ask. He's God. He's Jesus. Especially life, strength, refreshment. Jesus was like, you know, like some type of robot who could have just gone all day, right? Philippians 2, 6 and 7 says this. Jesus Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God the Father, 
a thing to be grasped. But he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Make no mistake, friends, Jesus has every power, we see that here throughout the Gospels, has every attribute as God the Father has, but being restricted by human frailty and subjected his whole life to everything non-heavenly. Imagine being in heaven your whole life, and then you got to come here. He just missed direct, unfettered communion with his Father. That's what he wanted, what he yearned for. My guess, if we ask Jesus the question, why must you continually depend on your Father for nourishment or encouragement? Jesus' response would be, it's the wrong question. It's not a matter of got to, but a matter of get to. Why wouldn't I? I love my Father. I want to be with Him. I want to give myself to Him. That's what we have through Christ. By grace, by free forgiveness, our whole lives are not a matter of got to, but of get to. Why wouldn't we? And yes, Jesus was the perfect human, but that's just the kind of human we need. Both as an example of how we're supposed to depend on the Father, but more importantly, a substitute so that our whole lives can be a get to of perfect communion with God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. He substituted Himself, died the death we deserve to give us the life that we now live with Jesus forever. It's amazing. So we learn that about Jesus. We also learn He is a King who doesn't cater to our expectations or demands. Imagine the consequences if we as humans could change Jesus' mind. You know, with enough pressure, enough guilt, enough demands, enough disappointment, would he be a God worth worshiping, or even God at all? He'd be a pretty weak God, wouldn't he? I've just talked to a host of people lately who refuse to trust their life to Jesus. And I understand, but they refuse to trust their life to Jesus because he didn't give them their life's goal, or life's dream, or life career. How could a good God not give me these things? Who didn't give them the family that they wanted or gave them a spouse they feel they didn't deserve? And you're holding out. That might even be you. You might be holding out. You're deeply disappointed. And Jesus is still not changing his mind. I don't know all the reasons why Jesus decided that for you, but I can simultaneously guarantee that he has something better. As he withholds that from you, he's handing out something far greater that if you had those things that you so yearned for, that you grew up desiring, that you was part of your dream, he couldn't give you the better thing that you didn't know that you really longed for. You didn't know that he had planned. The king, both totally willing to enter into our experience, he dies to give us divine experience. He shows us here how to prioritize the divine experience, but he simultaneously is a king who loves his father enough to say no to us. How will you respond? 
how you respond to that kind of king. Now, if you are also serious, there's kind of part two. If, you, if you're also serious when you say things in your life, like my priorities are out of whack. I've got to get my stuff in order. I, I need to get my priorities in order. Then this moment of retreat in the life of Jesus must be taken equally seriously. It has to be. To learn from Jesus how he does it. So we learn also from Jesus putting first things first and respond with our own priorities. So I want to encourage you, friends, put the first thing first in your life, which is vine time in a desolate place. Vine time in a desolate place. And by vine time, I don't mean that, that trendy new app, the vine, lets you share cool videos with one another. Hang out on the vine. Cool to say that. Well, I'm applying that here to Jesus. Let's go for that. I, said, I mentioned before Jesus' statement in John 6.57. As a living Father sent me, I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Just as Jesus is Father-centric and Father-first, so we are to be Jesus-centric, Jesus-first in our lives. John 14.31, I do as the Father has commanded me, so the world may know I love the Father. Then he tells the disciples, rise, let us go from here. What's Jesus doing? He's saying, look, I do what I see the Father doing. I obey the Father. Now obey me. Rise. Let's go. <laughs> let's put this into practice with me. John 15, 9. As the Father has loved me, so I, loved, I have loved you. Abide in my love. Jesus Christ abides in his Father's love. We've seen this already. We've already had a, a behind-the-scenes glimpse of the Father's love for the Son at Jesus' baptism when he says audibly for all to hear, this is my beloved Son, and you I am well pleased. Jesus lives for that. He goes back to the Father for that, for that moment of, of knowing he is the beloved Son, re-experiencing it time and time again, which is all a quiet time or a devotion time with Jesus is. So I have loved you. Abide in my love. John 20. 21, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. You see this? Jesus is Father-centric. I do what my Father says. I'll be with him. Now be with me. Do what I do. Go as I go. And Jesus is intensely practical about time in the vine. I love this. People always think of Jesus as like some kind of mystic. Right? Well, Jesus just knew everything. He's so wise. He made these little pithy statements, and it's so cool, and sounds like Confucius and this sort of thing. Jesus is intensely practical. A, he chooses the time that doesn't unnecessarily burden those closest to him. And B, he chooses the place that's utterly void of distraction, which is exactly what we need practically to spend time with Jesus. First time, he chooses the time that doesn't burden those closest to him. First of all, Jesus doesn't create a 25th hour in the day. All right, yes, this is the same God who made the sun stand still in the sky. He did that once. Jesus doesn't do that when he lives here on earth. And yet, I, I sometimes get prayer requests from people, and maybe you have as well, when people ask you, man, will you just pray for me that I have time to spend with God? And that is, I've said this before, the one thing I will not pray for people. When <laughs> you come to me, it sounds harsh. You're like, hey, will you just pray for me I get time with the Lord? No, <laughs> I will pray you make time with the Lord. He's not going to add the 25th hour to the day. He doesn't do that. 
You got to make it. But he's also practical here. He chooses a time that doesn't burden those closest to him, right? He gets up while it was still dark. Everyone's still asleep. You know, disciples may wonder where I am. I'm just going to get up now, spend time with the Father. No one else is awake. The next time we see Jesus alone with the Father in a desolate place, if you turn here to Mark chapter 6, just briefly, turn there with me if you would, verses uh, 45 through 47, we read this. After Jesus feeds the 5,000, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side, to Bethsaida, while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up to the mountain to pray. And when an evening came, the boat was out on the sea, and he was alone on the land. Jesus knows that at least a third of his crew are fishermen, and he's got two, at least two competent sailors. So yes, while they'd like to understand how he's just fed 5,000 people with some pumpernickel and a halibut, Jesus knows this is a great opportunity to get away for some vine time to be with his father. His disciples can carry on and go out to sea because they know how to sail. He's not going to burden them with something they don't know how to do. If you're a parent... You know, for instance, being a parent, uh, six-ish to eight-ish, both in the a.m. and p.m., is not a good time because you're going to unnecessarily burden your spouse, not to mention your kids. It's not a time to say, look, uh, I just need to get away. I'm, I'm just overloaded. I'm just going to get away for 10 minutes, spend time with the Lord. That's, you know, we see from Jesus' life, he doesn't do that. But... If you're getting away as merely a nuisance, annoying, seems kind of selfish when I'd like for you to do this with me, keep the time and disappoint the person. The disciples walked away here in Mark 6 disappointed. I want to hear more about this from Jesus. All the people Jesus dismissed after he fed them with just a few loaves and some fish, he dismissed them. What? We want to hear more. We want to see more. In fact, they look everywhere. We're told in John 6 for Jesus later. Keep the time. Disappoint the person. Jesus is intensely practical about a place as well. In fact, the Greek word for solitary or desolate place, eremos, is the same word used for wilderness where John the Baptist called people to turn their lives around. It's the same word to describe where Jesus proved victorious over temptation in the desert and so began to turn mankind's history around as it does all the way back to Exodus in that wilderness. The desolate wilderness represents a place where little can distract us from repentance, restoration, refining, and relating to Jesus. Jesus is giving us the perfect example to rise, depart, and go out to desolate places for ourselves Jesus, in fact, practices this more than he preaches it, but the other time he preaches it is in Matthew 6, where he says, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your Father who is in secret. And that word translated room, to mayon, refers to a storeroom in the house. A small room in the middle of the house that had no light, no windows, rarely visited except for supper time when you want to get out the refining sugar and this and that, right? So you could close the door and seclude yourself with no distractions. In fact, there was no light. So you literally could not be distracted. 
That's what Jesus intends for us. He's intensely practical about time with him. He knows how quickly we get distracted. I love technology. All right, I love it. I cannot do Vine time with my phone around or my laptop is nearby. As much as I love my ESV study Bible app on my phone, it's convenient. It's so much lighter than this like heavy thing I carry around. I can't do it. I'm way too distracted. Neither can I do Vine time on my sofa or even in my home office. Way too distracted. My desolate place is in the backyard my backyard, courtyard area under an overhang using a wooden, wooden chair that it has at any moment the potential to misalign my spine. It's so uncomfortable. It's just like, it's, just, it's, it's awful. But it's sufficient for keeping me awake. Works perfectly for that. Do I need an insurance plan that covers chiropractic, chiropractic help? Yes, I do. I need to work on that. But time with time in the vine is good. Take a Bible pen, a notepad, a journal. Because you haven't memorized God's word like Jesus, nor do you have his focus or memory due to sin in your life. Write down observations from his word. Write down prayers. And write down from both how you sense God is speaking to you, what he's saying to you. Time with him. If you've never spent 15, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes, special time alone with Jesus, I have a very simple handout in the back table. Very simple. How to get started with that. Or better yet, ask someone here. Ask someone in the church or in your community group whom you respect what they do for Vine Time. What they do to plug in and get life and receive nourishment from Jesus. By the way, that will help them too. It will help refocus them. Yeah, I should be doing that. That's what I do. (laughs) Right. And then they start to do it themselves more consistently. As we read what God says in Vine Time, and so hear from him, the second things about life, the second priorities, the, the third things, the fourth things will begin to take shape in our life. You'll notice when the Bible says things like, of first importance, or seek first. You'll notice when it addresses husbands, and you're like, hey, I'm a husband. Or when it addresses wives, like, hey, I'm a wife. Or addresses workers and says to work unto the Lord. Like, hey, I'm a worker. I do that. That's me. I'm a child. Oh, addresses children. Here we go. You'll notice the other priorities that he's trying to speak into your life. And I'm tempted, in fact, to list some of those things. But I'm not going to because I don't need to worry. As long as you're putting first things first, everything else will fall into place. The first thing first. So in a nutshell this morning, Remember this, if you forget everything else. Get second things second, and third things third, by putting the first thing first. Second things second, third things third, by putting the first thing first. Jesus gets out and about. He says no to people he's going to disappoint. No to other, other potential priorities. He spends time with his father first, and then he goes, and he preaches and advances the kingdom. So, If you go home and you make a list today of your priorities, you have misheard me. You hear that? If you're in your mind right now or during worship, you're like, yeah, I need to get my priorities in order. I need to make make this list. That's what i got to do. You are mishearing. You would have heard me wrongly. It's not what I'm saying. I'm saying just focus on getting the first thing first. Now, like Jesus, 
you will experience pressures upon this priority. You will disappoint people. You're going to bed earlier and getting up earlier for vine time may cause you to be the proverbial party pooper. Right? Come on, man. You're not getting drunk with wine, as Scripture says, so you can be filled with the Spirit. It may cause you to miss out. You're investing in the eternal and not in a gym membership. It may prevent regular contact with certain relationships and friendships. People will ask, why? Why don't you just want... Why? It's to have a first priority. Brennan Manning, author Brennan Manning, said it this way, the world will respect us if we court it. And will respect us even more if we reject it with anger and disdain because we, it shows that we care. But it will hate us if we take no notice of its priorities. You ignore it. You go on with your life. You're going to hurt people. You'll disappoint them. In fact, in 12 years of being pastor of a local church, in a local church, it's been my personal experience, personal experience, that the sin that most quickly has deteriorated fellowship and leadership has not been sexual sin, although that'll do it, <laughs> or greed expressed through extortion or you know, money, though that'll do it also, but people-pleasing. I can think of a number of occasions hearts have been broken through people, people-pleasing. Just making other people and pleasing other people and making that their aim and their priority, keeping other people happy, their number one thing. All under the guise of loving my neighbor, seeking everyone's happiness, wanting every person to succeed, developing relationships, serving my brother or sister. If I don't help them, no one will. And it's so harmful because all of it appears so Christian, and yet truth is swept under the rug so feelings aren't hurt. Prophetically speaking, something hard is put aside to maintain a relationship, although it hurts that person's relationship with God and your own. I'll put it very bluntly. If you are saying yes to practically everyone, you are practically saying no to Jesus. Say that again. If you are saying yes to practically everyone, you are practically saying no to Jesus. Alexander the Great used to famously say of his glitzy and seemingly great rivals, the Persians. He said, the Persians will always be slaves because they do not know how to pronounce the word no. Some of you, and I understand this, some of you can't say no to good people or good things, and so are slaves to constantly living for the approval of others, or for the feeling of approval that doing another good thing just might provide, but never fulfills. You were created to derive life, joy, satisfaction from the vine named Jesus. So do not respond this morning by making a list of priorities. Make a time and a place for him and watch all the right priorities, his priorities, fall into place. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this example here. And in the hurry and the busyness of many good things, that you got away for the best thing. Time in your vine, time of communion with the Father to get life, 
get encouragement, to get nourishment, to get clarity, to see that under the pressure of expectations and disappointment and other potential good things, you had the clarity to see, no, I know what I'm supposed to do. I know my mission. I've spent time with the Father, and I know my mission. Father, help us. I fear it's so easy as a church, as a people, to, to live this veneer of the Christian life where we just want to please other people and be kind to them and be nice to them and, and, and answer as many emails as we need to to keep people happy or do as many things with people or make as many play dates or any social events to keep others happy. Or we do things, the right things, we do them for the wrong reasons to please our boss, to keep him happy, to social advancement and professional advancement. And yet, Jesus, we will be crushed under the weight of those priorities. It's inevitable. We will crumble not only individually, but as a church. Help us keep you first, time with you first, even if that means occasionally disappointing others. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.